Hi everyone, welcome to another episode and the first in our new season. We're looking forward to bringing you conversations with some great fellas in the media, arts and entertainment world. The first of which is with leading Channel 9 reporter Clint Stanaway. We're very excited that we're opening up the conversation to more and more people. And to start with, Clint was great because he's an absolute pro and very open about his personal and professional highs and lows in journalism. We chat about his long career as a journalist in Australia and abroad, his time in sports journalism, reporting on devastating circumstances and the difficulty in carrying the weight of those stories when the cameras stop rolling. Clint is an incredible advocate for mental health. He recognises its importance in his personal and professional life, and his philanthropic work is pretty special as well, taking the role as an ambassador with the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation. Hardworking, empathetic and selfless. It's no wonder we had such a great time and we're very grateful for Clint finding the time to dive into this chat. Please enjoy our conversation with Clint Stanaway. Lastly, I want to give a big shout out to great supporters of the podcast, Mendel. Mendel's a Melbourne-based apparel company selling tees, tote bags, sweaters, hats and the rest. And they're putting all the profits back into a host of different charities aimed at doing amazing work for men's mental health. Liam and I are both very, very proud to be working with these guys. It's a great cause. They make some great threads, so we recommend checking it all out at mendel.com.au. It's M-E-N-D-L.com.au. This is the Men of Words podcast, where little conversations can make big differences. Hello everyone, welcome to the Men of Words podcast, coming to you from the virtual world once again and I'm joined via the World Wide Web with uh, Mr. Liam Murphy. How are you doing mate? Michael, it's a pleasure to kind of see you like this, I miss you mate, I wish I was, uh, wish I was sitting right next to you but I am going well, doing as well as I could be right now, back at work which is nice and uh, back into a little bit of routine, so I'm, uh, I'm ticking along mate, how are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, I think the routine's definitely the word. Trying to like just break back in. Obviously, yeah, my working requirements are far less than yours at the moment, but finding ways to fill the day, which is good, healthy ways. And uh, yeah, definitely keen to jump into a bit of a chat. And uh, you're absolutely right, mate. Looking forward to the ones when we're sitting next to each other, but this one's going to be a ripper anyway. Absolutely, my man. Now, we uh, we probably should say, Muff, that we're, we're beginning this one sort of as our first episode of Series 2, and we're going to start from here on in making our move away from sports-specific um, and into the, the arts, media, entertainment world. And we are very excited to have on board uh, probably a familiar face for a lot of you listening. Um, we've got nine new sports presenter Clint Stanaway joining us. Clint, thank you for coming on the MetaWords podcast. Uh, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited by it, actually. Yeah, we're very excited for you to be here, mate. We uh, we had the fortune of, of seeing you at work live at the Mendel uh, product launch, which was pretty cool to see. And um, I know you are very passionate about the work that they're doing as well, mate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I let me declare straight off the bat, I'm a Melbourne supporter. So um, any, <laughs> anything I, I know, I know it, it may be a bad thing, but um, years of frustration <laughs> all sort of keep continues to bubble under the surface so i am impartial on camera off camera when i'm sitting at the mcg when we get the fortune of actually watching the footy i'm not so impartial so anything um anything a lot of the players um you know little favors along the way um including uh mitchie hannon um who asked me if i'd if i'd host the night 
I was more than happy to oblige and, and help him out. And uh, I think it was a great night. It was a great energy in the room. And um, I think what they're doing is it's, it's special. It's significant. Um, and I love the merchandise as well. Pretty good gear. I know we... Uh... <laughs> it was just great to have so many like-minded people in the room though. And as I, I use the word energy and I don't use that lightly, but everyone was really really just sort of locked and loaded and uh i found it really really significant actually mm. i think it's really cool you know in and like that's i mean that was such an awesome night you're exactly right and you've you've really nailed that and i think having all those people there with this sort of broad but you know like very focused at the same time goal like you know everybody like the goal is to just raise awareness around men's mental health like that's you know pretty clear goal mm. and a pretty you know i mean even that night you know the beyond blue guys were there and you know guys said from said some really awesome words there and having a chance to just chat to everybody who was in that mindset and you know and in that room you know being supportive of, of what mitch and mark are doing is uh yeah it's such a cool thing yeah and and especially i mean special because you get an insight into how we can better connect with each other as well um and these guys are doing something really positive by all reports it's actually going really well too um and they're using this label as a conversation piece which is which is even better to spark change so kudos to them yeah, absolutely. No, and uh, good chance for for yeah us to sort of you know serendipitously cross paths and and yeah and eventually 100%. a couple of months down the line get you get you in for a chat, which we're really <laughs> excited about. So Murph and I have been you know chatting, I guess about the the sort of the format and the way you know this we're sort of the podcast have been rolling out, which you know we've been very grateful for lots of support in, and I guess yours is yours is sort of a an interesting an interesting story and obviously a pretty big you know sort of uh, like diversion from from those guys as the uh, as a sort of you know the journey of an elite athlete you know through to performing at the top of their game and but you know the, the media world and the and especially the journalism world is something that I in particular and I know and I know Murphy's as well are really really interested about and I think it's such a you know it's such a, a melting pot or such a meeting point of different people's opinions and and emotions as well in an area that is also trying to be sort of objective, you know, whereas, you know, it's like trying to present a subjective idea objectively in a way, which is, which is to me a bit of a quagmire and, and seems like something that would obviously is, it could be a bit of a breeding ground for stress and anxiety and all that sorts of things. And it is an area that I'm just really, really fascinated in. So yeah, we're super keen to sort of get, yeah, some of your, your thoughts on uh, some broader ideas as well as, yeah. you know, and then as well as some of the, you know, the way that you handle some of this stuff yourself as well. I'm certainly not an elite athlete, by the way. I'm glad you pointed that out. <laughs> I mean, I do move pretty well at F45 every now and then, and I sort of shuffle <laughs> shuffle around the tan like old Cliffy Young used to on the road, but uh, <laughs> I'm certainly not an elite athlete by any stretch. Mate, I hear those kettlebells get a serious working out at F45, so <laughs> don't, um, don't undersell yourself. Um, just, a, just a quick one, and again, uh, just on a previous podcast, Dyson Heppel, he's an impressive fellow, isn't he? Like, he just oozes leadership, yeah. and even better, and just for your listeners um, to note, as a, as a journalist, as a presenter in, in media, he's just so accommodating, and he's mm. just such, you know, what you see is what you get, and he's just such a gentleman. I, there are very few footballers that you can... I mean, they're all very good, um, but such is media management these days that they're all so, so refined and so... They're almost, they're almost too polished. What mm. I love about him is that he just, he just, he just runs with it. He, he says what he thinks and he's just got such a, a really nice manner about him. So I really enjoyed that, that ep, actually. Yeah, thank you. He, uh, That's awesome, man. He's definitely one of the most pure humans we've, we've had the... Uh, 
luck to me. Um, and you're absolutely right in what you're saying with the almost robotic nature of, of a lot of the sports people now. I mean, our first, very first episode, Tommy Nichols, the uh, mm. ex-Gold Coast Ruckman, he pretty much said straight up that, you know, the boys that come through the system now are literally trained to have exact answers at exactly mm. the right time. And he said, you know, for him, it was always about just being different and being himself. Um, so, yeah, Dyson definitely as well. He's so open and honest and just such a kind bloke. So it was really cool to, yeah, have the opportunity to meet him and then for him to be willing to come on the show as well. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool, pretty special. Um, now, what we what we usually do, we, we start off by sort of going, I guess, through this, with the sports, with the footballers, the basketballers, talking about their journey to the top. But uh, for you, we might we might jump straight back to uh, your first maybe TV experience. Uh, yeah. I'm think I'm I'm reading in the past you you started down at uh, Win TV in Bendigo in about early 2000 or yeah they were glory days. Yeah. <laughs> I love Bendigo, uh, such a great town. Yeah, I guess it's it's a funny one, mine because I had zero interest in the craft in the industry um it all sort of started uh, in high school you you have to do i think it was a week or two weeks work experience Mm -hmm. um i at the time i wanted to make big money i wanted to meet cool people i wanted to watch world-class sporting events so i wanted to get into sport management that was always something i wanted to do um it might have been a bit of a you know Jerry Maguire type thing. I don't know what it was, but that's that's what I that's what I was sort of aiming for. And I got stuck in the week of work experience because I really had nowhere to go um, for that week. And Dad was getting really frustrated, so he sort of cracked the whip on my behalf. His best mate worked in operations at Channel Nine in the newsroom as operations manager. So effectively, he was just herding everybody around, um, camera crews, journalists. He was um, in middle management. What he offered dad was the chance for me to go in and basically observe for a week in a TV newsroom. And I sort of sat back and I was a bit of a smart ass as a kid. I thought, well, why would, why would I want to do that? I've got, you know, I can watch the news at home at night. Why would I want to go in and sort of immerse myself in a TV newsroom? And this is back in the day when Channel 9 was operating out of Bendigo Street in Richmond, the famous old building there. Um, Anyway, I did it because pretty. I had to do it. I, I had to do a week and I just was getting nowhere fast. Um, what I discovered pretty quickly was just how addictive uh, the industry is, how addictive television is. And, you know, I did make an attempt to try and immerse myself in every sort of facet of, of the newsroom. It was, it was actually quite amazing because... There you had it was really intimidating. You got these really big personalities, these old school personalities, mm-hmm. um, and that in itself was highly addictive. And then actually observing a live TV broadcast, um, it was something quite extraordinary. And you still that buzz stays with you to this day, even when I'm presenting news um, of a weekend. And um, that's basically where my sort of passion. Um, started and it just grew and grew and grew and so much so that I ended up really switching my priorities in terms of my um, year 11 and 12 education and as it turned out dad's mate called me when I was on schoolies I was on schoolies at Apollo Bay and said hey mate I've got actually a casual job going in the newsroom if you're keen and 
it was as a researcher in the news library. Um, very sort of very entry level junior position where you're mm. researching for journos um, effectively. And so I took it and I've been at Channel 9 ever since, uh, basically. So it's sort of a bit of a, it was a bit of a fate thing, um, I think, in many respects. Um, but also, had Dad not cracked the whip, who knows what I would have been doing. Mm. Uh, so, if, and effectively from there, I, I mean, I, I lived and breathed TV news from that point. It, as I use the word addictive, but it was it was that every day um, you'd go and you'd be working on a on a different story, um, different event with different people. Um, so it, every day was different. And so I started out, went to Win TV to be become a cadet journalist. Um, did that for sort of 18 months, two years, and then I was brought straight back to the Nine newsroom and and from there sort of was a, a general news reporter doing anything and everything that broke overnight, starting at ungodly hours, heading out mm-hmm. to crime scenes, to bushfires, to floods, to, to anything really, um, and then sort of worked my way up um, to a senior reporting position from there, became court reporter, um, went to London, became Nine's European correspondent over there eventually, and then came back and found myself in sport, which was pretty much exactly where I wanted to get to. And, um, yeah, as I say, I've been there ever since. So it's been a, a pretty pretty interesting, what is it now, 18 years since I, I left high school. So mm. I sort of just had, had my Nine family with me for 18 years, which is pretty cool. It's huge. You've, uh, I can imagine that there'd be some pretty... Um... Pretty awesome, pretty intense stuff as well. Um, I know mm-hmm. from from doing a little bit of research, you uh, you got to head down to Tassie, or well, not got to head down, but yeah. we're down in Tassie for the whole uh, Beaconsfield yeah. mines. Um, what was that like, or what you know, what sort of experiences have you had where you've been put into positions with with your work? Um, that are quite confronting. So that was, well, that was was very confronting and very memorable in the sense that just that the circus that went on in Beaconsfield, this small town of mm. look, I don't, I don't even know. It would would have to be like a hundred or so people lived in Beaconsfield in um, I think it's northwest Tasmania. And when I say circus, there were like Winnebagos. There was like the, the Tracy Grimshaw Winnebago. There was the Naomi Robson Winnebago. There were helicopters. There were just endless amounts of news crews. But my the most memorable thing once those those two poor fellows um, came out of the came out of underground under the mine, and the sort of situation calmed itself somewhat. And, and yeah, off quite often forgotten in all this, which is horrific, is the fact that a fellow actually lost his life mm. in this whole incident, Larry Knight. And um, I dealt with his family down there quite a bit. But um, <laughs> Channel 9 actually signed the exclusive rights to speak to the two guys, um, Todd and Brant. And it was a Tracy Grimshaw sit-down interview, an exclusive. And by that stage, sort of a week had passed since they were out. And they had to find a way to get the media out of town so that they could shoot this interview. Mm-hmm. So my job can you believe, was to try and coax Channel 7, Channel 10, ABC out of town so it would free it up for 60 <laughs> minutes to shoot a whole heap of sequences with these two miners. So I came up with the idea. I said, guys, there's not much happening. We're not seeing much today. I reckon we take a day off, go down uh, down south to play a bit of mini golf. 
anyway, we we went down to, <laughs> went down about an hour down the highway and um, played mini golf for the uh, the afternoon, and that enabled gave sixty minutes enough time to to take Todd and Brad <laughs> to shoot this t- small town. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exclusive. So. Um, that's that therein lies the whole circus um, yeah. situation. It was unforgettable. It was, it was full on. Um, you know, uh, there was. There's been so many sort of really, really memorable news stories, good and bad. I mean, I've been to an Olympics, which is extraordinary in itself uh, in London. Um, I've also sort of some just. Incomprehensible tragedies that I've sort of had to had to be at. I was the sort of first journo on the scene in Mildura um, after a, a hit run which killed um, scores of, of teenagers. So uh, it's it's a really it can be a really full on job, really really full on job. Yeah, I especially when you're I mean first responder to to something like that. I, I think I remember the. Um, the Mildura thing, like seeing it on the news and I would have been, I don't know what year it was, but I reckon I would have been maybe year seven or eight at the time. Yeah. And it, I just remember like my parents were like, you need to watch this because these kids are your age. Um, yeah, it was pretty full on, mate. I don't know. They were walking yeah. home from a party along a, along a sort of back road, a really dark um, dirt back road and um, hit by a, a, a drug and alcohol affected driver. Um, so there's that, you know, there's been notorious bushfires, um, as you say, Beaconsfield, which has been, um, extraordinary, but a lot of moments that to this day are just, they remain sort of pretty, pretty clear as day in your, in your mind, good and bad. Does that, I mean, cause you know, like being a conscientious human being, you know, it must be, it's obviously a difficult thing to like, you can't remove like the emotion that you would feel around situations like that. And that's obviously part of what the reporting is, is, you know, cause that's a, that's an important part of it. Does that sort of thing, does that really contribute to like a lot of burnout in your industry? Like hundred percent. And what you find at the moment is that the journos, um, they aren't sort of, they're coming straight out of uni and walking into jobs in major metropolitan newsrooms because there isn't that news is sort of growing. There's, you know, the evolution of 24 hour news now mm. you've got news bulletins on. So hence why you need more troops on the ground effectively. Mm. So they're sort of not getting that experience in, in country, regional uh, or television for, uh, for TV media, but in you know, newspapers, radio in, in regional areas. So they're exposed a lot earlier to these mm. sort of scenes. Um, there is a really, really, really cool, um, thing that's been set up it's born out of the u.s it's called um dart which is um basically a means an online means of educating journalists about the psychology of trauma um, and in doing so the implications for news coverage so it's a really it's a really interesting mechanism um because it also provides a forum for journalists in all media to Mm. sort of explore these issues to also share their knowledge and ideas so in short what it does is it gets gets people talking and helping yeah. others. Um, and that's obvious now in this COVID-19 situation, um, you know, covering the pandemic, how better to cover the pandemic, um, you know, how to res- more respectfully cover the pandemic, um, mm. which is obviously very, very important as well. Yeah, absolutely. To jump sort of back into, I guess, um, you know, some of those formative years and, and different experiences that you've had, 
with your experience in moving over to London and being the European correspondent for, for Channel 9, what was that sort of like? Did you feel like you were still operating within the system that you were familiar with being working with Channel 9 or was it just a totally different kettle of fish over there? I actually, I got to getting to London, I, I sort of did it as a means of escaping. And this, this is, if I, I can take a couple of steps back yeah. before I got to London, Basically, the content of these stories was really heavy. And and from my experience, I tended to take a lot of that heaviness home with me. I was actually, I was probably most impacted when I was a court reporter. Uh, so many of my colleagues had this uncanny knack of being able to process what they saw, what they heard on a daily basis and sort of dispose of it. Um, but I, I couldn't do that. Mm. Um, I found that grind really taxing and I've never actually, you know, friends and, and very close family sort of know about this, but I haven't really spoken openly about it before, but I wasn't coping at all. So I told my bosses this, um, Mm -hmm. more broadly, never the details, which was clearly an error. Um, the details being that I really wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I'd get out of bed. I'd hate going to work like I despise going to work the court mm. precinct was just the stuff of nightmares effectively because of the content and what I was hearing day in day out so uh it started to really impact on, on me emotionally um I think I, I probably on reflection started drinking a lot more as a means of suppressing what I was seeing and hearing so mm-hmm. it really wasn't it wasn't nice um Almost, I reckon almost every month I'd sort of asked to be taken off that particular round. Um, again, I didn't – my biggest error here is that I, I sort of spared them the detail, sort of said I yeah. want out. Um, I didn't really explain my situation. Uh, but I was told again and again that staying in that role would teach me great discipline um, and that I was, you know, I was going to benefit from that discipline. Um but I was really going nowhere personally. I was exhausted. So hence mm. why I decided the only way I can get away is to, is to quit. Um, so I didn't speak up. I, I was struggling. Um, I ran. Um, so I quit nine. Um, I was anxious. I was falling out of love pretty quickly um, with what I was doing. So I ended up in Europe with a backpack um, don't get me wrong. It was something I always wanted to do. I always mm-hmm. there was that 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 sort of burning desire to travel, but this was quite forced in the end. Yeah. So okay. Because because I hadn't unpacked any of that baggage I'd accumulated mm. in Melbourne, it really hit me like a like a shit ton of bricks in the UK when I arrived. So actually, this is a this is the sort of scary thing for me on reflection. But I lost a lot of weight. Yeah. Um. And. I'd arrived in London in late summer. Uh, so the next few months as it got colder, I just wasn't operating properly at all. I, um, I sought out and spoke to a professional in London, which thankfully was a really good thing to do because I, I think it sort of just, it just spared me that constant anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I was, sp- I was spiraling quite quickly and quite badly. And then being in London, having made that forced move there, um, Again, I just I was very restless. Uh, the nights were there were no sleep. I remember Mum actually coming to visit. She was alarmed at how crook I looked. I was really pale, really thin, 
I just made out to her because I was sort of hiding this from her as well that it was just the London winter having an impact. But mm. ultimately, it was a, a lot more than that. And it was born out of the fact that I never really addressed it and I never unpacked it until I got to London and was forced to. And did you, like, and with that move, because are you going over to London with, like, a very limited are you going over there with a very limited like support network or are you just, you're just over there? Did you, you didn't have family or friends or anything over there as well? Like... I certainly didn't have family over there. I had yeah. friends over there no, no close friends. I made a lot of really great friends over there. Um, and as a means of making money, I had to step back into journalism because I really knew nothing else. I was pulling beers for a while, but it just wasn't enabling to me to make the sort of money that I needed to, to make ends yeah. meet. So um, I ended up landing a job at, at Sky TV, which was which was full on, um, working in, in the British press. Mm. Um, and then ultimately Channel 9, I, I started picking up a little bit of work for Channel 9 on a freelance basis. And then as it turns out, I was sort of appointed in a full-time role over there as a correspondent. And, and I was really lucky at that stage because there wasn't this real heaviness that I'd experienced in Melbourne as a reporter yeah. Um, it was a, it was a really really nice thing to do. I started picking up. You know, I worked on things like uh, the Ashes, um, an unsuccessful Ashes campaign. I might add. You know, I went to <laughs> went to Wimbledon, a few sporting events. I saw Greg Norman crumble at the British Open. Yeah. Um, it, it was really, it was a really cool time. Um, in that there wasn't the world wasn't in any form of decay. There wasn't there wasn't any there, there wasn't any any sort of any mass tragedies or or really un, unsavory or unfortunate events happening so mm-hmm. it was a lovely time to be there and that sort of then sort of awoken my passion uh, for the craft and and came back to Melbourne and and uh, that's where I landed in sport um, thankfully mm. uh, because I, I love it I love it can I um I'm just really interested. I've sort of just been waiting. I, we'll get back to your journey back to the yeah. to the motherland, back to Australia in a sec. But you mentioned before you left that um, work said to you, you know, you're going to get this discipline through your exposure. Um, and then you mentioned that you sort of, in hindsight, you would have told your bosses more detail about what you were what you were feeling and what you were experiencing. Do you think, you know, this is what 2007? Do you think if you had come forward and being super honest with your your feelings and ex- and uh, experiences then do you think you would have had the same reaction from your bosses compared to maybe now if you were to speak up and say you know like with all the work that everyone's doing at the moment and in yeah. voicing how important mental health is do you think there was a difference back then to to what it could be now all i could say is i hope so i would hope so I couldn't tell for sure though. Mm. Um, I, I certainly know fast forwarding to 2020, if someone was to make that declaration, I think absolutely a hundred percent. And I think it's, it's a little different now in that you don't sort of the numbers sort of numbers of a newsroom back then were such that, you know, you just had, you had to do that because there weren't enough people, there weren't enough troops on the ground to, to be able to throw out, a, a particular story or so, so you sort of you were just more exposed whereas now you get a lot more support a lot more numbers um to, to assist but uh, look I, I i think so i hope so um but it was sort of i look back and i wished i, I had of i had a said something that said 
I mean, I landed in London and I was able to get help in London and I had an amazing experience there. So sure, I should have spoken up and on reflection, I wish I had have spoken up, but the flip side, I'm also really, really fortunate to have received the help I did in London. Um, and it certainly put me, it, it sort of, it really got me back on track um, and I rediscovered that love pretty quickly. Yeah, it's pretty, um, I mean, for it's me, daunting, I know that, it's yeah. da- it was It was really daunting. Like here I was, I was, when mum came to visit, I was, I'd, I hid it from my mum. Mm. I just, I just said, oh, it's the winter, I'm crook. But I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was sick. I was sick. I was, I was really, 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 really low. Um, and it was impacting on everything I was doing, you know, socially, um, especially, but also professionally. So, um, yeah, I mean, thank you, I guess, straight up for, for sharing that with us. I, I imagine it's, you, you said you haven't really told that to people other than your close circle. So it's, um, yeah, it's pretty, we're pretty thankful, I guess, that you, you're feeling comfortable to, to bring that forward. And it's probably, and I know in my experiences, every time I've spoken up, it just takes a little bit extra weight off my shoulders as well. So I'm hoping that you being able to share that again, you know, this, this far down the track is, um, is beneficial for yourself as well, mate. So yeah, thank you for that. No, it's a, it's a pleasure. And, um, I, I guess, uh, I, the environment is such now, I think, not just in my industry, but in, in so many industries and those that I'm mm-hmm. exposed to in sport, especially whereby I, I just think it's, it's great that people are able to, to sit down and, and sort of unpack things and unpack things really quickly. I think sport especially is doing such a better job, um, especially more recently. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've listened to and, and hosted quite a few functions with, athletes um whether they're sort of panels forum chats so i've been exposed to quite a few of their stories you know a guy like tom boyd um who i had the pleasure of interviewing uh when was it in september last year at a grand final breakfast um he's a bloke who walked away from his dream mm-hmm. and a bloody big check i think it might have been upwards of one million dollars a year just to get his life back um Another one, another interesting one, and I might digress, but um, Shani Layton is a. I, so I grew up with Shani Layton because she played netball with my little sister. So I, I've known her since she was a little girl. Uh, different sport, obviously, different pressures, but same thing. Um, mm. I looked at Shani. I'm sure many people would. She's unbreakable, right? You know, she's always loud, always very strong. As it turns out, she was actually really vulnerable and, and struggling. So. Um, uh, yeah, she's sort of the last person I expected to, to burn out, to suffer. Um, and that's, I guess, further reinforced to me that nobody is immune and, and no industry is immune as well. That's an excellent point. And I think to that, and we, I mean, those, and like Tom and Shani are great examples that you just mentioned in that, uh, you know, obviously maybe dealing with internalizing a lot of the stuff they're dealing with and not being super open about, you know, sharing it. Is that? Is that something that, as a as a journalist, and I guess this is my outside looking in perspective, mm. and and you know, please feel free to correct me, but do you have a bit of a sense of when people are being, and this could be in the sporting world, outside the sporting world, but if you're you know, say like interviewing someone or or are working closely on a story with you know with certain people involved, 
do you have a bit of a sense of when people are getting their guards up around you as a as a reporter or as a journalist? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the news guys um, especially would would find that um, there is. I mean, it's a funny word, trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you, you're able to build trust in in um, in a sports sense because you know you're exposed to the same people all the time yeah same mm-hmm. football clubs the same netball clubs so you're able to build that trust whereas these sort of general news reporters that sort of like okay you you go to that horrific um police incident last night where uh, four police officers tragically lost their life on the eastern freeway right and you you, you know you haven't been exposed to these these people the families the police force so you do find that immediately especially in times of you know heartbreak tragedy mm. people do of, of course they have their guards up um it's a little bit easier um to bring people these um and they're often such incredible stories in sport um you know being able to sit down with um you know the some, some of the great characters of the game and and they're a lot more comfortable about sharing their stories with someone because you get to obviously very slowly um, build this trust with them and, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe I, I think there's I think there's look I'm not going to sit here and, and pot people or name names but no I think course. I think I think the industry is such that there are there are certain people out there that probably um, give us a bad name and and <laughs> and it's they just continually making um, making the same mistakes and it really really it, it starts to wear you down as well because it starts to impact you and, and the trust that you've built with other people. So um, mm. I hope I've sort of answered that in a way. No, absolutely. I think uh, it's, no, perfectly because it, it does, uh, it highlights that, you know, people in, if it's, if it's in a, you know, a, a, a certain situation that, you know, they're feeling vulnerable or insecure and stuff. And I think even, you know, aside from a tragedy, people are insecure about how they're presented to the world, to the, the people that are surrounding them, let alone, you know, if it's, if it's on the scale of like a, you know, a national news story, a hundred percent. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing for you as, you know, I guess, you know, being on both sides or understanding both sides of that coin. Do you have, or is there any sort of like, you know, I mean, not particular situation, but have you ever felt that sort of like, being boxed into that category of, well, you know, Clint Stanaway's a journalist or he's a reporter. Like, have you ever felt sort of boxed in in that regard as far as your, you know, because of because of the, the work that you're doing or prejudice against that? Uh, y- yeah, you do. It, 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 again, it probably just comes from, from an audience that probably doesn't know you or hasn't dealt with you in a professional yeah. sort of basis. I, I'd like to think, look... I'd like to think this is the case for all, you know, sport journalists or sport presenters or um, in in our industry that um, – and let, let's just look at football, for instance. Mm-hmm. Footballers, footballers tend to be um, – they, they will give you as much as you give them effectively. They're, they're really good. And my, some of my favourite stories are, are the ones where, you know, they'll, they'll sit down with you and they'll, they'll just – chat they'll open up without the cliches without Mm -hmm. um, all the rest of it and that's where that's where you're able to build this relationship um 
which effectively gets lets them get the message out um, even stronger. Um, yeah, it's but yeah, absolutely. There are there are instances where you know, oh, Hyatt's Clint's done away from from Channel Nine. Sorry, not interested straight away without mm. you know, without even letting you explain. And, and I and I get that. Uh, I mean, it doesn't help with it doesn't help when you've got a guy running America that calls media what does he say fake news and, and yeah rest, yeah you know? um and on you know to a lesser extent um there are a few interesting characters and personalities here which don't tend to to give us a uh, a great name mm. uh, columnists and, commentators the like yeah and, and i guess that in a weird way is probably where where like where these sort of questions come from and i definitely don't yeah I'm, like i'm not trying to box you into that at all i just really it's it seems like there's been this weird sort of shift and it is probably to do with stuff like Donald Trump saying that like the you know the media is the enemy of you know the people and stuff like that where there's this like more so maybe more so now than ever there's this weird like trust issue between like you know places where people get news and the people that are consuming that news at the same time and and I I think it's I mean it's really hard because you know it's something that I mean, you take like the whole coronavirus pandemic, it's something that more so now than ever, people are trying to be informed. And I think people are definitely paying more attention to the news than maybe we all were six months ago for some. And I'd put myself in that category pretty confidently. And it's just hard, you know, trying to, and it's, and I, I mean, I like to think I'm someone that gives people the benefit of the doubt and I want to trust, you know, the media outlets that I, that I do, that I use and I do trust them. But it's really, it's, I just find it really frustrating when it seems to like cross this line of like, well, I'm not necessarily questioning all the facts that you're reporting on, but I'm questioning the person. Mm. And that's what I feel it ha- seems to, and I don't, I mean, like I don't have a big cross section of things to compare it to, but I feel like that's just becoming more and more prevalent. Like these like questioning reporters and things like that. Yeah. Look, and, and this is, and I, I hate social media for this reason, but mm. the most immediate form of feedback you can get is often on social media. And if someone doesn't like what they're hearing, it's immediately dismissed as, you know, fake news or you're making this up. And that's sort of where I think it's an evolution based thing around. And, and I'm not just blaming social media, but people, you're right, people, and maybe it is because of these, these constant sort of commentary type voices that you're hearing that are, that are sort of fueling that mistrust or or that theme. Um, but if someone doesn't like what they're seeing or hearing, mm. they'll effectively say that it's you know it's fake news or it's you know you, you're making it up. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. Does it? Yeah. Does it weigh on you? Yeah. yeah. And like, where did that come from? You know, like where? Like when did that fucking start being a thing? <laughs> Well, I think, again, I think social media. I, I just mm. think because it's just so instant and, um, and people use it as a, as a means of to obviously watch and consume the mass media, but also they have a direct line to, to journalists, um, also to others uh, mm. to sprout their opinions and the like. So I think that's where it certainly – where it uh, – where it evolves from any or has evolved from anyway. It's an interesting, uh, yeah, it's an interesting link. Cause I mean, you talk, Murphy spoke about the, you know, professional 
athletes and Clint, you spoke about social media and they athletes will always say like, nah, just turn the, turn the news off or I don't even look at it, whatever. But when your profession is to be looking at it every single day, it obviously becomes extremely difficult to just turn it off. Um, how do you, yeah, how do you navigate around trying to avoid that? I don't like, fuel. I don't fuel it for a start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I get a, I get a great, and just referring to social media, I get a, a great deal of amusement on a nightly basis from social media, especially when you walk off air. In my case, as a sport presenter, and you, you have nuffies um, potting you for, you know, <laughs> for, for mispronouncing a player's name or a, you know, wearing a crap tie or something. <laughs> Very important stuff, uh, but but I mean, and but I still I still consume it. Like, yeah. so many people will sit back and go, "Oh no, no, I, you know, I don't look at social media, all the rest of it." But I, you know, I dare say they the bulk do. And mm. for me, luckily, I, I do get a, a great deal of amusement out of it. Um, don't get me wrong, I, I do take it to heart every now and then. <laughs> and and this is this is an interesting. Um, conversation as well around I'm sure you've had it with athletes mm. about social media the pitfalls of it um, it's a really valuable tool it's a great tool for us um, to sort of engage with the community to promote stories to, um, um, to, to to receive sort of news tips from the community but it can also be it can also just be so damaging so mm. damaging um, so um, it's a really interesting space. It's a really, really interesting space. How many, uh, might be a silly question to you, but how many ties have you thrown out after uh, a night on the news? Um, <laughs> I've got a lot of ties. Uh, I've thrown out, a, I've turfed a few. I sort of, I don't, so, I don't so much turf them. I'm very charitable with my ties. So yeah, I'll just yeah, sort of yeah. on, on pass them to a, to a brother-in-law or a housemate or, whatever it be there's actually a famous story at channel nine back in the day where the this is he was an, in a really sort of old school gruff news director and um one of the journos was told when he when he was on it i never want to see that tie ever again anyway he <laughs> he he wore the tie on air again and the news director went up to him with a pair of scissors and just cut the tie off and he said <laughs> I told you I never I told wanted you. to see it. I, ne- yeah. I never wanted to see it ever again. And <laughs> right there was the consequence of it. So how good's that? It's quite funny. So there you go. I digress. Sorry. No, no, I'm all for it. That's good. <laughs> That's it. This it's is just insults. a format for our digressions. This is it's all good, man. <laughs> I think um, to maybe to dive into something a little bit, Clint. That is, I guess, something that maybe I would consider and I would think is a bit of an underpinning, you know, or like a very foundational thing for someone as a, as a journalist and as a reporter is um, the idea of, and uh, like understanding and empathy mm-hmm. because, you know, and, you know, so I'd love to, I'd love to sort of get a bit of your understanding on that as something I would assume that you, you know, you've got to, you've got to be quite practiced at and, and, you know, quite good at it as well as, you know, I guess, at the same time, as you mentioned about, you know, your time like working, working on in and around the courts of yeah. being able to, you know, dial in the subjectivity, objectivity, you know, uh, like the, finding that balance as well. So like, what are you, what are your sort of thoughts around, around empathy? Um, just before I do, what are your, Please. what do you think in regards to 
reporters and how empathetic yeah they are on air i look it's a it's a really good question it's something i have been like i said i've been thinking about a lot at the moment and i i mean there's probably a bit of nature and nurture in there like i grew up in a pretty like super left-leaning house and you know so certain the mention of any some certain newspapers names would elicit all sort of emotional expletives and stuff like that so you know like i sort of come up in the environment where there was this very like subjective version of news and of and of the presentation of that news and of the people that were presenting that information as well so i i think that my well my my over my the overall thought is that one i don't think i could inject a level of objectivity that a good reporter needs to in in like certain situations and you know i love people like you know like louis thoreau like the british you know documentarian yeah. who you know is an amazing person albeit tongue in cheek sometimes he's someone that is very you know seems to be very good at like asking questions objectively and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, look, I guess I see it as a balance, but then I also see maybe, you know, if you want to call it the bad apples of the bunch, that lean really hard in the opposite direction of being who are still considered to be reporters and, and you know, journalists and stuff that are very opinionated and, and, and like almost maybe to a point of where they're just doing it to try and elicit an emotional response or, you know, or a, or a big response. So, yeah, I don't know. That's probably where I'm at. Well, I guess the first point is that journalism isn't a matter of life or death. You know, we're not, <laughs> we're not exactly saving lives of what we're doing. <laughs> what, what, we're, what we're there to do is to inform um, and I think most importantly to listen because um, <laughs> good journalists listen very well. Um, bad journalists tend to sprout and um, get caught up in in frenzied conversations and debate and lose track of of what it is they are meant to do, and that is to report facts and report facts, you know, well and articulately. Um, you know, we've got to show absolute care for a community, as a doctor does you know as mm. our police force um do i'm not suggesting that again that we're that we're saving lives well but we do have a we do have a, a role to play and and empathy 100 percent is is key to that role and personally I, I think it's i think it's crucial it's it's certainly something that you know i practice if someone does not feel comfortable um in the situation uh, I I try to remove myself from from that situation. You know, mm. um, there are you're right. There are some um, if you if for want of a better term, bad apples. Um, and again, getting back to our previous conversation, they probably do tend to give us um, a bad name. We get a bad rap just for a few uh, commentators, um, a few sort of uh, headline hunters, if you will. Mm. um but yeah absolutely and and it's it's times like these where you know i, I speak of more the the covid 19 situation where um as an industry we've had to um change the way we sort of gather stories you know you just don't get access to people the way we did a few months ago so if you're not compassionate if you're not caring if you're not a good communicator you know, you just don't get a story effectively. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, it's it's funny though. It, it does the different mediums. I think would probably tell you. I mean, more broadly, sure, empathy at the top of the tree, but it's it's very. It can be very difficult as a TV reporter or a TV TV person, mm. um, as it is to be a a newspaper reporter or a radio reporter, just because of, you know, you've got a, for a start, you've got a big bloody camera there. Um, so it's a very intimidating uh, medium to start with. Um, but again, I, I'll just reinforce the point that we're, we're not saving lives. We're, we're there to do a job and that is to, you know, properly communicate, to properly listen. I um, mean, without those fundamentals, you, you're not really getting anywhere fast. I don't, I, I find that anyway. I think, yeah, from, from, my perspective, you know, a viewer, you can tell the journalists that are extremely empathetic with the people or the story that they're working mm. on at the time. And I think you, for, for me especially, like, as, as you mentioned, Martha, like the bad apples of, of the world, I disconnect straight away. And I, and I find that I, I have a very quick, I guess, I make my mind up very quickly on whether I think that that journalist in particular is showing the correct amount of empathy or compassion towards mm. the person or the story and it makes so much more it makes it so much more easier as a viewer when you can tell that you know that specific journalist is feeling exactly what we're feeling and informing us on the level that we want to be informed and i think yeah you're absolutely right that that's the number one thing i feel that from a viewer's point is yeah and if you want up, if you know. want coverage that sort of represents a wide or a diverse array of perspectives, your journalists need to mirror the community. You need to be inclusive. You need to be diverse. Um, Absolutely right. I'd say, yeah, I guess it's, do you think that the empathy is something you have developed along the way or is it something that's always been there for you? I'd like to think it's something that's always been there for me. Um, I think most people would say that. I, I think um, I think I've, I've got a lot better uh, through the years because I've been exposed to so many different situations. Mm. I've spoken to so many different people, um, and and I think I, I, you know I'm probably still I'm still learning. Hopefully, I still will get better. Um, but I'd also like to think that you know. I, I, regardless, I'm, I'm a pretty easy person to, to speak to, to communicate with, to, um, you know, as a, as a reporter um, in, in my, you know, doing my craft. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, people feel as comfortable with me as they do sort of anyone else. Do you think your, um, your own lived experiences and, you know, that we're speaking maybe in the time that you were pre-London and, and in London in the UK, do you think all those experiences have helped you become or be better at that as well? Yeah, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, well, the world's a big place, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and again, just being exposed to so many different um, situations and people, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I learned, I learned a truckload. I learned a truckload in, in leaving Melbourne, um, which in the grand scheme of things is, um, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a fairly small media landscape when you compare it to, you know, Europe and, mm -hmm. and London yeah. and, and the like. So, um, yeah, without a, without a doubt. And, and I found that in, I think, um, in London, 
it's the, you know it's very fast very people are very brash um you know it's a very different style you know that tabloid sort of reporting and tabloid media um uh, but ultimately, they are some of the some of the structures and they have in place from from all things, you know, social responsibility and and um, you know dealing with with things like um, su- you know supporting journalists, supporting communities. Um, they're as good as anyone else. Awesome, Clint. So we might uh, might jump into your through, I guess, through your experiences in in the sports media world and working very closely, obviously, with the AFL realm, um, and hear your opinions in what they do as a as an organisation in in terms of the mental health um, side of things, and and perhaps your your thoughts on where it could go as well, mate. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, do you want me to pick up? from my experiences um, because don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think things have improved out of sight. Um, mm. I think clubs and let's just look at, let's sort of bring it back to, to footy for, for a bit because that's sort of, that's um, <laughs> sort of tends to dominate, doesn't it? Um, mm. But you know, clubs are doing a, a terrific job by and large in this space that they're, they're getting better and better i mean my dad works as a head trainer at, at melbourne footy club again the melbourne link it's a bit it's a bit sad isn't it but um <laughs> hey it's all, it's all part of it <laughs> no no uh he says and he's he said this for a while but you know player welfare especially sort of the investment and the consideration around mental health is it's something that blows him away it's it's quite quite extraordinary and, and keeping in mind that he's just talking about about Melbourne um, in terms of what he's been exposed to but I more broadly see it in club land um, you know cro- across the board basically um, I guess on the flip side of this has the media evolved as well to bring the media into this conversation because I think we're also getting a lot better as an industry um, as a football media industry or a sport media industry. Mm-hmm. I think there's a few exceptions. Um, you know, people who who think that, and again, I'm not. I'm sort of speaking generally, but people who think that um, mental health is a curtain that that players tend to um, hide behind, yeah. uh, or you use as a bit of an excuse. I, I sort of you hear that um, every now and then, and, and I like to think someone who um, has been impacted um, in a in a you know in a sense and had friends who are very much you know suffering um, right now. I, I'd like to think that I do tend to um, pull most people up on that when when I when I do hear that because it's a, it's a really awful thing to say or an accusation mm. to make that you know you're using mental health as a means of of trying to escape a certain situation. Well, that's, I mean, it's part of the stigma, I guess, as well, isn't it? Like, 100%. Making sure that, you know, if we're talking about mental health, we're talking about it because it's there, not as a, you know, like you said, that curtain. And it, getting rid of that stigma is, I mean, that's what we're all, what we're all here for and why we're doing what we're doing. Mm. But I think I read, I just wanted to pull it up here because the Players Association were saying that um, 
they facilitated almost 2,900 mental health consultation mm. for almost 400 members in 2019. Oh, they're, big, they're, they're big numbers. That's mm. huge. So that's, huge. And that was a 56% increase since um, the previous year. So um, obviously, obviously jump, it, yeah. I, was, I, I, I was quite staggered by that, to read that. Obviously, you, you hear you hear more and more stories of players who are obviously burnt out and are needing to take time out of the game, um, which is which is absolutely fair enough. Uh, but those stats, I just thought, wow, they just sort of really hit me. Um, obviously, mental health as well, it's changing over time, right? You know, and as such, we all need to respond very, very differently um, when those stresses and experiences change. Um, but then you'd have to say the support needs to change as well. It's a massive number that, I mean, I'm just, I was just thinking, you look, each club, maybe, you know, 45 to, let's say 45 to 50 players on the list. It's nearly, nearly half the whole league in players have yeah. sought. Yeah, 400 members. Yeah. Consultation last year. That's massive. I mean, we, we love to, to, to speak about the outside work, um, way of life for our guests and and Clint we we're definitely interested to to hear um what you do to take care of your your own mental health now um can, do you want to talk us through yeah what what makes up Clint Stanaway outside of the professional world and and the the world that we all see you and know you from yeah well outside of work so work's obviously um it's you know when it's going it's it's pretty full-on um the channel mm. nine machine but the you know, the media machine more generally. Um, so I think getting an escape for me is is really, really important and and staying fit is something that I prioritise. Um, so whether that's, I mean, I don't do a lot of running, um, but um, whether that's something in the gym or, or over the last few years, it's been it's been cycling and and it was sort of born out, it was, it was born largely out of, out of a, a tragic circumstance in that a great family friend of mine, her name's Mandy Herbert, her daughter actually works at the Players Association, Georgie. Um, Mandy uh, passed away from ovarian cancer. So that's going back five years ago. And it was just a really, it was something I never knew much about, a disease I, I had very, very little um, knowledge about. Mm. So hence why it sort of really, struck me um you know you hear a lot about you know in in women obviously a lot a lot about breast cancer in men a lot about prostate cancer testicular cancer but ovarian cancer was something that you know i hadn't heard a lot about uh full stop so and as i sort of as mandy went through this situation i um i became more and more um, absorbed not just with her battle but with the the cause generally and mm-hmm. and just very quickly there's there's actually no early detection test for ovarian cancer mm-hmm. and, and I found that um, extraordinary in itself you know you can get a mammogram um, for, for all things breast cancer we all know about prostate cancers and the, the mm. various tests um, that are fairly uncomfortable um, in regards to <laughs> detection of that um, but yeah, there's, it's an insidious disease with um, a very high mortality rate because once women are diagnosed, 
uh, it's it's too late at stage late. two, stage mm. three. So <laughs> what we did while while Mandy was still with us, thankfully, is we decided to um, create our own uh, charity. Um, and what we would do is we would sort of raise money to uh, fund the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation, to which I've become now a national ambassador for um, in that what they're striving for is an early detection test for ovarian cancer. And in, in Mandy going through what she went through, it sort of struck me because, you know, there are so many more women in my life that, mm. you know, sisters, uh, my mum, my nan, all this sort of stuff. And, and Mandy was a special woman in my life, but I've got so many more special women in my life that um, I'd like to think need to be protected by mm. this disease. So um, since then, we, we decided to come up with an annual bike ride, um, which was really good for me because it sort of helped me uh, stay fit. Uh, it also uh, helped me sort of engage in a very different cross-section of the community um, and sort of also leverage off my media contacts and, you know, fundraising-wise, marketing, all the rest of it. So first year we did Adelaide to Melbourne. Um, we did we did the friendly way. Uh, we did a sort of almost 1,000-kilometre um, voyage. Uh, second year we did Canberra to Melbourne, which mm -hmm. was uh, – we were told – in the planning phase, it was largely downhill. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's two sides to the Great Dividing Range, to be honest. <laughs> and that the hills were very rolly. Um, <laughs> when someone says rolling hills, it means bloody steep hills. Uh, so that was it was horrific, to be honest. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do that year. Um, it might also uh, be because I just didn't get to squeeze in the amount of training I would have liked. But and then. Uh, just back in um, in November, we did Adelaide to Melbourne again, but we went uh, the more scenic route. So we actually went via the Barossa Valley. Um, mm -hmm. You draw your own conclusions ah. as to why we did ah. that. Uh, <laughs> just to pick up a little bit of uh, cargo along the way. And then we actually tracked up along the Murray River just to take in some of uh, okay. Victoria, New South Wales, big sort of country town because we, we figured, you know, while we're raising a lot of cash through our own personal um, you know our own our own contacts. Mm. Um, we we also should be sort of really sort of raising awareness, raising mm. more more awareness, mm. and spreading uh, this message to to more people. So we took in big towns like you know um, like Shepparton, like uh, Bendigo, um, Mildura, um, these sort of places. Swan Hill, Achuca. It was a really really cool ride, but it was um, almost fifteen hundred kilometres. Um, which through 10 days was uh, pretty arduous and arrived back yeah. home in pretty, pretty bad shape. Um, a few salt baths later. <laughs> speaking of, like, I couldn't do a salt bath, but I think it was day six or seven, I jumped in the shower and it's, a, it's always a really nice moment to actually get off the bike, usually grab a beer and just jump in the shower. But yeah. this night we, we got in and had a few froppies Went to jump in the shower and the hot water hit like hit my head and it started dripping and as soon as it got down sort of below the hips, I was in agony. Like <laughs> just <laughs> it was just one of the most awful experiences. <laughs> um, I was shrieking. Um, as it turns out, yeah, I was in a bit of disrepair. Um, 
so but yeah it's it's a it's a great thing it's a great outlet for me bike riding i i love it i know um you know in terms of the mental health space the pucker up guys do yeah. some great work mm. yeah um definitely yeah there's some really good personalities in that group uh, but I, I i yeah i love it and i love i love a charitable cause and and interesting on this ride is that it was a majority blokes who jumped on the bike as well like uh, we we obviously had a few uh, a couple of a couple of ladies, but blokes who just wanted to get out there because you know their their mums, their sisters, girlfriends, wives could be impacted mm-hmm. by this disease. So um, yeah, when, and last year we raised near on one hundred and forty thousand dollars, which I found out this morning um, has solely uh, contributed to a, a research project. Um, so, okay. which is really, really cool. And we've done sort of more than a quarter of a million, uh, sorry, half a million dollars through the three years. So it's, it's really good and a, and a great outlet and just something very different. Yeah, mate, that's, um, it's incredible. Do you want to yeah. um, say the name again of the uh, foundation? And So, yeah, it's the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation, um, of which I'm a, I'm a national ambassador for, which um, it's, it's, I'm just so proud of that. It's it's a really they're a really great team to work for, and and again they're just striving towards this um, research around creating an early detection test for ovarian cancer, and the annual ride, silver lining ride, um, is what we do. We're sort of trying to plan for. Probably can't do it this year, obviously, given the mm. um, the nature of what's going on. But we're thinking about maybe a a Brisbane to Sydney type ride okay. via places like the Gold Coast, Byron Bay, Newcastle. That's your top four, Murph. It sounds like, sign him up, sign him yeah. up. Yeah. You're on. I'll start training now. You're on. Uh, that's awesome. No, that's I, awesome. I think it's so cool. Like, And this, I mean, this is such an overwhelmingly awesome and, and humbling thing that I guess, you know, Liam and I have had the chance to have some proximity to through doing this podcast. It's just like people doing really, really positive things with the platform that they have built for themselves you know and it's you know it's not to take away from the work that people that don't have this sort of public forum or don't have you know a sort of as big of a a spot in the uh you know the uh the eye line of of the of the public but it it's just it's it's really really awesome to see like how many people and there i mean there's so many worthwhile causes and 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 obviously the ocrf is right up there and yeah it's just it's just really cool one thing it's just one thing that it you know yeah we've been able to appreciate out of doing this. So yeah, hats off to you, mate. It's really, really cool. Also, I mean, I think what you're finding at the moment, again, with this situation that we're, that we're in, and I hope I'm just, I'm a bit of an optimist, eternal optimist, but I reckon we've all learned a lot about ourselves and each other. Um, So I'd like to think that it sort of makes us all better people, um, sort of more thankful, more generous People, I'm already seeing sort of evidence of that. Um, just in, you know, people are just sort of craving human contact, and mm. Mm. and and people sort of picking up the phone just to check in on on each other. Um, and and that's what I saw, like on the bike ride. I, I just I just it opened opened my eyes up to to communities and and especially the small sort of regional communities. Um, just how how thankful they were for what we were doing and you know i was just i was thankful that they were able to contribute to our to our cause but um 
I guess, jumping on the bike the last couple of days and riding it just gave me a lot of time to think about how people can best use what we're going through right now to, to mm. make us all, hopefully, make us all um, better people. Um, certainly, certainly improving my cooking skills anyway. <laughs> That's it. Got to find something to fill the time with, right? No, you're, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Like we spoke to, you know, one of the, um, soon to be neuropsychiatrists from the, um, working here in Melbourne, this guy, Dr. Kieran Kennedy, who's like just top bloke, Kiwi. So don't hold that against him. But <laughs> he, you know, this is exactly what he talked about was, you know, out of this, obviously once in a lifetime sort of hopefully, situation we're all going through is like what is you know some of the positives that we can take out of it and he said that he's really identified the amount of that, those little extra effort things that people are doing to check in and to to be you know like to connect any way that they sort of can and for that to exist you know once everything goes well back to normal and once you know the world starts spinning again i think yeah it's something that yeah i mean as a optimist as you say is um yeah it's definitely something worth you know worth a bit of worth keeping the fingers crossed over that's for sure yep and we're gonna get you both on the bike next year is that right so I'm hey i'll wow. get my old man in he's a life <laughs> lover I know Shane. Yeah, old Shane O'Murphy's a big one for the uh, the the lycra. But I've got the <laughs> I inherited an exercise bike while in uh, while in <laughs> lockdown. So yeah, I've been spending heaps of time on it. It's uh, very fighting, very therapeutic. Fighting fit, mate. I think I'm pretty sure I used to hold the record for the best uh, no hands uh, bike riding performance for our high yeah. school as well in our <laughs> year. I'll t- I'll take that crown pretty so uh, I'll, I'll back that up. <laughs> Clint, we might um might. I know we're a little bit pressed for time now, mate, so we might jump forward to um, your, I guess, nomination for, for someone that you think would be really cool to get in touch with on the on the podcast. And it probably ties in well with your foundation work as well. So if you want to, I know you, you mentioned who it was to us before, but if you want to jump into that one, that'd be great. Um, a few honourable mentions, because when, when you mentioned it to me uh, that I could sort of nominate someone, I, I had... An abundance of people that I sort of wanted to get involved and that mm. were I'm sure would have been really wrapped to get involved um, one of which uh, is a fella by the name in in the industry Julian the stoop who uh, is a f- formerly a fox sports um, reporter um, he is he's one of the most down-to-earth guys you'll ever meet and um, unfortunately um, just recently um, <laughs> due to this whole situation found out that they were making him redundant, which is mm. um, which is just a horrible situation. But just like I'd like to think I am, he's a bit of an optimist, and uh, and he um, yeah, he's got a great a great sort of take on life and and the challenges that are, are thrown at him. Um, also, I was thinking about maybe getting um, an umpire involved. Uh, so I had a preliminary chat, and this might be one to save for later. But a guy I like that of, of Brett Rosebury, who is a, a oh. four hundred game veteran of the um, umpiring fraternity. So um, I did mention it to him in passing. Um, but so, look, someone I reckon would be would be just unreal to have a chat to and, and someone that I've admired for a long time is Daniel Kowalski. So um, you'll likely remember the name. I don't know if you're both too young to remember uh, Daniel's exploits in the pool. Um, yeah, exactly. He, he was a, he's a gun swimmer. He's... He's done it all. Like he's been to Olympics, World Championships, Commonwealth Games. He's got a gold, silver, 
and a bronze Olympic medal in his top drawer. I'm not sure if that's where he keeps it. Um, <laughs> but he was sort of like, he's an interesting one because he was, from a professional sense, he was always considered as the bridesmaid. And it's a horrible term mm. because, mm. you know, ultimately he won silver medals, but he was always considered to be the, um, the perennial bridesmaid to the likes of the great, um, Kieran Perkins and or Grant Hackett. Yeah. Um, but still, here he is. He's retired from his craft or his passion as a Olympic champion, um, Commonwealth Games champion, and um, has got a, a few world championship medals too. So um, he's also got a lot to say in the, in the mental health space. He's a, a very proud ambassador uh, for Beyond Blue. Um, he always said that he had the support all the support in the world at his fingertips. You know, he was at you know, AIS and, and all the rest of it. So obviously um, there's a lot of support there, but for some reason it was ingrained in him that getting help was a sign of weakness. Um, mm. And I think, you know, obviously, hopefully it's it's something that's, that's changing with athletes these days, but um, that's something that struck me in conversations with him and, mm. and reading more about his experiences with mental health. So he's a, yeah, as I say, a very proud ambassador for Beyond Blue and I think he'd be um, a really interesting guy to chat to. Mate, it sounds, uh, it sounds like an awesome man to, to get in touch with, mate. And um, it's definitely a hot, oh, you know, a common thing to hear the, the old reaching out for help is a weakness and takes people like, like him to uh to tell his story for us to realize that um it's not and it's actually it takes more guts to speak about it and it than weakness so now nah, that'll be really cool thanks mate so and, uh, the, the two others julian and, and brett i'm sure we can um get in touch with in some capacity as well mate mm. yep that'd be good they'd be very very good so um no guys uh thanks for having me on as well it's been great been really really enjoyable we've uh we've definitely loved it before we go one more minute mate if i don't take if i can um i have been advised clint to ask you what you received for kk last year oh my goodness kk last year uh, family kk there's a few now nah, work 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 kk oh yeah hang on what did i get oh hang on yeah yeah, yeah. it was it was from my colleague Corey norris he bought me some um, Bondi Sam's uh, tanning accelerator, <laughs> um, and uh, and a toothbrush with some whitening toothpaste. I think, I think he's trying to send a pretty clear message there. I don't know how I feel about does that. that. Does that sound about right? I mean, yeah, I didn't get told what it was, but it sounds like that. That sounds like the ballpark. So. Yeah, there's always, they always, have, oh, it's funny because Tony Jones, who I sit next to, um, geez, he'd be, he'd be interesting on this podcast as well. Um, I have a word to him, but yeah. um, he's got the biggest chompers in the yeah. industry. <laughs> and Well, there goes our shot. Takes the- <laughs> and yet, I mean, I've, the likes of Corey, who I'm assuming you you're speaking about actually calls me, I think, Junior Chomp or Chomp Junior. So, <laughs> uh, and, and the tanning, the tanning stuff, the Bondi Sands, like it's just, it's just how you're born, you know. I've just got a really sort of rich Mediterranean type complexion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the only complex. I love it. <laughs> Jeez, you made me think there. I'm like, oh no, don't forget someone. <laughs> yeah, that's, all that's all good. The other one, um, and you mentioned earlier, your um, 
you, you like your gym to keep fit and healthy, but yeah. I have heard along the way that you you attend your F forty five that much. They've given you shares in the building. <laughs> probably, I, I probably spruik it um, <laughs> as much as anyone else. Um, I, the problem is, I, I do go a lot, but I don't do a lot when I get there. I probably, I probably chat. I chat it's more than that. I do. It's like F twenty five to thirty, you know, sort of thing. It's not the full forty five. It's uh, hey, it's it's a lot of fun though. It's great fun. Actually, yeah, Dyson oh, Dyson yeah, Apple used to um used to own that F forty five that I now frequent uh, in Port Melbourne. Um, yeah, it's good. I just uh, they're doing classes via Zoom at the moment, mm. oh, which yeah. is really really interesting. There's a lot more self discipline there. Um, <laughs> every now and then, I have to sort of just step out of shot and. When everyone Catch else is doing burpees. <laughs> yeah, look, I I, uh, I have to admit yeah. I have not signed up for the online F45 classes at my F45 for that exact reason. <laughs> Come on, lift. <laughs> I know, slack, slack. Rubbish. Now, Clint, that's uh, it's awesome, mate. We really appreciate your your time, and um, yeah, always great to to speak with you. And hopefully, we can catch up for one of those golden ales. Post, uh, post-coronavirus and, and have a real good catch-up, mate. Let's do it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome stuff. Yeah, really appreciate all the openness. Appreciate, you know, someone like yourself doing really positive things with your platform and, and yeah, super grateful and really keen to sort of, yeah, get this get this chat out to the world and for you to be able to, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Hopefully you have a bit more sport to report on in the not-too-distant future, fingers crossed. No, guys, uh, thanks for having me on as well. It's been great. It's been really, really enjoyable. Clint, Murph, Pleasure to have a chat. This is the Mental Words Podcast where the little conversations can make the biggest difference.